Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? Hello. Did you know we have a YouTube channel? I did know that. Yes, it is Flame Alive Pod. And I've been spending a lot of time on our YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. What have you been doing? I have been falling down so many Olympic rabbit holes. <laughs> so I'll load up a video. We put shorts up there. We have all the episodes. We have some stuff that we filmed in Beijing. And I clean things. You know, you always have to clean up on the, the back end of it. But then it'll give me suggested videos for me to watch. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And for this episode, I was watching some old videos as well for some of the athletes we talked about. Oh my goodness, there is so much there and it will suck your life away. <laughs> and I Any... highly recommend it. <laughs> Any favorites so far? Well, then I got into Eurovision, so. Oh, well. <laughs> no, but lots of old skating programs, people I had forgotten, people that we've talked about in book clubs, so old gymnastics programs, all the old Russians. There's a great old video of when equipment falls apart. People nice. on the uneven bars and the uneven bars just collapse and the parallel oh. bars for the men. Yeah, it's great stuff. <laughs> well, also great stuff is our interview today. Today we are talking with Alexandra Allred, author of When Women Stood, The Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World. Alex is a former elite athlete and trailblazer. She was on the first ever U.S. women's bobsled team while pregnant. She is also a fourth degree black belt in martial arts and is currently an adjunct professor at Tarleton State University. We talked with Alex about some of the more interesting stories and themes she's uncovered while writing her book and her own experience in bobsled. Take a listen. Alex Allred, thank you so much for joining us. You've written When Women Stood, The Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World. Why write this book and why write it now? So this book has actually been in my mind for literally decades. I like to say I was minding my own business. I was sitting on the couch watching ESPN because I'm a huge sports fan. And I saw men's bobsled and I thought that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And so I couldn't wait to see the women and they did not come. And so I got in my car and I went to the library because this was pre-internet. And I found that in 1940, Catherine Dewey, the granddaughter of Melville Dewey, as in Dewey Decimal System, she was in an open, the first and last open grand championship between men and women. And she won. And it took about two days for the men to decide they did not like that. They stripped her of her medal and banned women from the sport of bobsled. I, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. My background was I was a martial artist and I was a competitive fighter. So then to hear that 
women are not allowed to bobsled only because that she beat men in an open competition. And by the way, the big skirt that she was wearing when she did win that competition in 1940, it was so appalling that I started this really obnoxious letter writing campaign. And I wrote the IOC, the USOC, I wrote the International Bobsled Federation, the US Bobsled Federation, basically just saying, I can do this with my eyes closed backwards. And so of course the phone call came about two months later when the United States and many other countries, they were being forced to include women into their sledding programs. They didn't want us, but they were being forced. And I got a, we're going to do this. You big mouth or you come in, you know, and after all that trash talking, what do you do? So I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. And then I hung up and looked around and thought, crap, I know nothing about the sport of bobsledding, but I stayed in it, and to everyone's surprise, I won. And this is what started me really thinking this book had to be told in some way. As the director of the then Bobsled Federation was putting the the medal around my neck, and the Sports Illustrated was there taking pictures, he leans in and he whispers, you know this means nothing. And he wasn't kidding. They sent us off on the World Cup tour because they had to. We had no sled, we had no coach, we had no training in how to crash, we had no training in how to drive. I mean, it was the bad news bears, but in real life. When I was in the World Cup in Calgary, the Jamaican bobsled and Trinidadian bobsled teams helped us. And when we were on the World Cup in St. Moritz, Prince Albert of Monaco, his bodyguards helped us. And when we were saying we need our own sled, they suggested that we have a bake sale. (laughs) And so that was really, my teammates and I realized, we said, they're trying to make this so difficult that we just give up and go home. And so we made a pact. We said, we're staying in this no matter what until they announce that women make the Olympics. And so we did. And we, a lot of injuries, a lot of drama, a lot of trauma, but we stayed in until they announced that. And then I went on to play another sport, Sports Illustrated they'd followed my career in bobsled. So they asked me to try out for a women's professional football team. And the only thing was I wasn't allowed to tell them that I was a reporter for Sports Illustrated. And so I got to tell you, there were some terrifying women, but I made it. I made the team and I wrote about it. And I think that was when I learned that women's professional football players to make the league work and I have the picture that when I signed the contract and shook my general manager's hand and I got $1. And that's when I really realized what men would play professional football and only be paid a dollar. And what men would have stayed in the U.S. bobsled program if they had been given nothing except for the anticipation of being injured and going home. And that's when I knew like this is women are just, we are truly so badass in ways that no one will accept. And then as I started doing more and more research, I realized how often women are written out of history. And that was the beginning. So I do have to ask, who was forcing bobsled to take women? Where was that pressure coming from? Thank you, Jill, because no one ever asks that question. So the IOC was really pushing a diversity agenda And that was really hard because the International Olympic Committee has a very long and storied history in holding women out of the games. Right. And so, yeah, they were pushing this agenda. And then at the same time, they were getting a lot of complaints from other countries who wanted female bobsledders. And so I really think they just thought, 
oh, all right, fine, we'll just let them in. And then left it to every country. So the Swiss were not wanting their women. The Germans were okay with it. The Canadians were really good about it, but the best was England. And so there were countries that really supported their female athletes, but there were many more who just, they threw up breadcrumbs and expected us to just go home. And isn't that ironic because Team GB cut all the money for their women's sliders. Yeah. And it's funny because, and I love that you know that. So it happens where it goes in waves. And I since believe that when it comes to women in particular, everything has a political agenda, everything. And so on the face of it, Great Britain was fantastic and very inclusive. And so was Canada. Canada has had moments where they pulled back, but England, a lot of countries will pull back and then give again and pull back and give again. And it has nothing to do with the female athlete's ability or how amazing she is. It's everything about what's going on in the politics. Historically speaking, the female form has been used in war, in religion, in politics, in economics, to the convenience of the person who has their own agenda that is usually not pro-female. Before we get off the bobsled, one of the things jumping way ahead in the book is how the Soviet Union recognized the power of women in sport. And it's interesting how your experience with countries that didn't want to deal with women in sport, and yet you have a whole philosophy that does see the value. And how does that, you mean, that's got to conflict on the global playing field. It does. Lenin in the pre-Soviet Union, but Lenin recognized the value of women. And it wasn't so much that she was woman, but it was all bodies. And he knew if he was going to have a revolution, he needed to have as many bodies as possible. And then from Lenin, that just continued on is that we need all citizens, we need all people to make this work. And so, you know, I, I tell my students when I teach on this topic, I always say, that's fine with me. I don't care. That's how I wish it. I, that's how I prefer it to be is that we stop saying men, women, this, we just say we need all able-bodied people for X, Y, Z. That's how it should be. Right. So then in the book, as you mentioned, the Soviet Union was already putting in their female athletes because in this actually we go forward, but let me go backwards for a second. In Athenian times, the Spartans recognized right off. Now, the reasoning was a little skewed, but they believed that strong women built a strong society. Okay, that is absolutely true. Where they twisted it a little bit is it wasn't so much the strong women, but they believed that a strong woman would carry and bear a strong male baby. That's what they wanted. But again, it gave women an entry into military training a little bit. And then sports, they let her have a voice in politics. They let her own some property, as opposed to the ancient Greeks who held everything away from females. And the female form was supposed to be submissive and frail. And she had really no rights except for taking care of household duties. Now let's flash forward. The Soviet Union adopted that philosophy of a strong woman, a strong female athlete would show our Soviet power. And it did. And that's exactly what happened in those 1952 games is when the Soviet gymnastics team came marching out and they did, they marched. 
everybody was shocked. And I laughed because in the clippings that I found, they were described as Amazons and gigantic women. You know, they were five foot two, but they marched out and they looked so uniform and then they were so strong and they were mechanical in their movements. And that terrified the world so much that John F. Kennedy wrote a piece that went into Sports Illustrated, basically calling out to say, we got to get stronger. Because the Soviet women's gymnastics team scared everybody so much. It's crazy. Going back to Greece, when I was reading that part of the book, you got the impression that Aristotle did not like women too much. And so what he wrote, and because that's what survived, that perpetuated a way of thinking. And then you get Napoleon, who did that again. And then what our listeners know, James Sullivan, and then Avery Brundage, classic I, don't, I can't even begin to describe what we think of those. Okay. Two. Let's talk about how one person has such an impact on women's ability to progress in sport. So you just triggered me with saying the word Aristotle. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I did a lot of reading on him and he was a horrible person. And if I could go back in a time machine and punch out anyone in history, that would be the guy. I mean, his hate for women, honestly, I wouldn't punch him. I would love to just confront him and go, what is your deal? I mean, his hatred for women was just so obscene. And as you say, it carried throughout time. And just woman is a pair of ovaries. That is what woman is. But men were supreme beings who just had testicles. I mean, and, and that was in the mid-centuries of the Industrial Revolution. But I love that you just named James E. Sullivan because nobody knows who he is. And do you realize that today in sports, the Sullivan Awards is one of the most coveted awards in today. He was a horrible racist and misogynist. And the fact that we still have athletes receiving the Sullivan Award. I I can't believe that they know who this guy was. He did everything he could to keep women and non-white males out of sport. Just a horrible person. You all know this, obviously, is the history of sport with white supremacy is appalling. And is for all the people who love sports so much, I don't think enough people understand how white supremacists affix themselves to the sports world to be proof of how superior they were. And then, of course, as soon as the sports world opened up to non-whites, look how dramatically things had changed. It's really interesting. I could talk on this one for days. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you wrote a book. That's why I wrote a book. Yes. <laughs> I teach at university and college level kinesiology, and I train tomorrow's physical therapists, occupational therapists, coach, trainers, everything, right? And I would be given textbooks to teach from. And I would literally look at a 300-page book and see, and I'm not kidding you, about three pages on women, about three pages. And I started protesting to the dean saying, how are these people going to be good at what they do when they can really only talk to and be safe with and for 50% of the population? And that's really when I decided I have to write this book because I don't know if you all are familiar with the Mary Kane Nike story. The fastest girl in America, she goes to Nike with the dreams of going to the Olympics. She is Olympic bound and they destroy her because they don't know female anatomy. And, and it was so negligent. 
in U.S. Congress spoke to our own medical facilities and said this has to change, but they left it for them to do this. Today, they still use a 154-pound male model to represent women in medicine. And we know that females will wake up in the middle of anesthesia because we react differently to anesthesias and different medications. We have different signs of a heart attack or a concussion or to cancers. And yet we're still using the male model and only 6% of all exercise science is given to females. And the main reason is they've told us because of our reproductive system, because of our menstrual cycle, we are too time consuming and costly to run medical trials. And so they just don't. Okay. So this just leads into my biggest question coming out of reading your book and having spoken to a lot of female athletes, there seems to be this constant push and pull between female athletes who want to train like men or just treat us like you treat everybody else referring to men and we have to do things differently because women's bodies are different and women's bodies respond differently. So where do you come down in kind of that constant push and pull of equality versus opportunity versus making it work for a woman's body? That's a great question. And the answer is, and I have this discussion with my college students all the time. And my answer is yes, to, to both. That's my answer. My own sports background is I am a fourth degree black belt. I was a competitive fighter. I played women's professional football. I test drove the Volvo gravity car and was the first North American and person to do this. I did bobsledding. Pretty much, if you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to do it. And somebody might say, and they have, they'll laugh and say, you're like a guy. And I say, no, I'm like a Spartan. I'm like an Amazon. And so just because I do non what has always been non-traditional female sports doesn't mean I'm trying to train like a man. I'm training like an Amazon. I'm training like a Spartan. I'm a badass woman. Not anymore, actually. I'm getting old and tired, but I was a badass woman <laughs> once upon a time. But that is how we should be accepting that. And I am no, I am no better, but certainly, certainly no less than a male, but I can do pretty much anything the biological male can do too. I know I can. There are certain disadvantages. Before we started recording, Allison was talking about being shorter. So sometimes the reach is harder. I'm not going to be slam dunking in the, the WNBA anytime soon, but I can pretty much just do anything anybody else can do. But yeah, I am different. My body is built differently. And so I am extremely territorial over the small space that is women in sports because biology does matter there just in terms of science. This isn't an opinion. It's just science. And I know I'm eking us toward a really controversial topic right now. And so I always say to everybody, I have a family member who has fully transitioned female and I love, adore, and worship her. And I tell people all the time, it is not my business or anybody else's business to tell someone how they're supposed to live. And that is Absolutely, everybody has the right to be the person that they were meant to be, who and whatever that is. And so I always tell people, my only thing is, is that 
that this one small space because exercise science does matter, biology does matter. It, the female athlete, her menstrual cycle pre-competition wreaks havoc on athletic performance output. And that's a fact. And so what I tell people all the time, but since on the topic of transgender female athletes, we absolutely have to provide a space for them. And the transgender youth must have a sports program because sports is so much a part of our culture worldwide. And it's it's so healing and therapeutic and it's so good for us on so many levels, both physical and emotional and mental, that we have to provide them with that. But my stance is until we stop using the 154 pound male model to teach tomorrow's doctors and researchers that a woman is is really a little man, we're not. And until we have 50% medical research and representation, until we have 50% females in medical trials, and until we have 50% exercise science, we would be grossly negligent to let a non-biological female body in the small space of sports until we know enough to fully represent her. We don't need the Mary Kane story again. We need to understand the female body better before we open it completely up. Okay. I'm going to ask this question just to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly, because as we said, it is very controversial. It is. Are you saying that we don't know, we don't have the science or the science that we have says that allowing transgender females is unfair competing against biological females. I love that you broke it down because so right now, my answer for right now would be, we're still trying to figure out the fe- the biological female body, her reproductive system, and how much having her menstrual cycle wreaks havoc on her as a competitive athlete, right? And so we need to get that figured out. Into the future, I had a transgender female athlete in one of my classes and we kind of did this. And so I said to her, I said, I'm blocking you out now. Yes, I am. But not because you are who you are. I'm blocking you out now because I am who I am. And I need to know that we're fully able to understand and take care of the cisgender female athlete, right? Into the future, that gets, that's when I'll be perfectly honest with you. I've got a big fat, I don't know. And again, that's not being anti-transgender, but I look at someone like Leah Thomas, the swimmer Leah Thomas, and I go, oof, you know, wow, just by biology alone, that was wildly unfair to all of those female athletes. We know right now that the hormone suppression, the testosterone repression that is used is not conclusive because even after two years of repression, the testosterone level on transgender female athletes is higher than almost all elite female cisgender female athletes who have high levels of testosterone. But that's not to say that this can't be something that we can do in the future. So I have, but we just have to make sure that we do level the playing field. For now, it's definitely not level. Taking out the the transgender female athlete it's just not fair for cisgender females. We don't have the research on cisgender females. Just give me 50% of all medical research, science, clinical, extra, everything, and then we can go, okay, this is what we know. Now let's look over here and let's look at the transgender 
female athlete body, biology, hormones, whatnot, and then let's have that conversation. Again, I'm not in the business of telling someone that they can't be who and what they need to be, but I'm still looking at repeated Mary Kane stories over and over again because we've got coaches and scientists and doctors who just shrug their shoulders and just look at us like we have bikini medicine, we have breasts and we have a uterus, but everything else is exactly the same. Nope, not by a long shot. Okay, so getting back a little bit to the book and the history, because what we're really talking about is throughout sports history, there's a question of what is a woman and what is feminine and what is allowed for women to do. And you talk a lot about that in the book. Yeah. I'll tie up with what we were just talking about. So a lot of people will find out that I am opposing transgender female in sports right now. And then I see them for who they are. And that is ultra conservative, extreme right groups who their problem with transgender females in sports isn't even about women in sports. You know, and I'll look at them and I'll go, you know, you're the same guy trying to take away women's rights for her reproductive system. You're the same guy that would, 50 years ago, you would have said women don't have the right to vote. So you go stand over there and get away from me because we're not on the same team. (laughs) I don't have any problem with drag shows. I don't have any problem because the female image what is woman in the female image? The female image is always been used by both sides for whatever reasons, right? And that's one of the things that I talk about is the female image has always been important to the ancient Greeks, right? And then when the Spartan woman opposed that, then look what was written about the Spartan woman. And then today, that female ideal, the hegemonic hegemonic feminine ideal is still so important today because look at our most popular athletes. They're usually white, most definitely pretty, most definitely thin and trim, and they kind of have that more frail look. Cosmetic surgery has become extremely popular for the obvious reason. So we hold on to that ideal and that supports that the patriarchal system big time. And then anything that strays from that, a transgender female strays from that. And so that terrifies people. They're beautiful. So I talk a lot about the ideal because the feminine ideal on all levels in politics is so much more important than what our male ideal is. I talk a lot about just why politically what a female looks like is so important to them. And so in today's conversation that it's turned into what is woman, I should say. Historically in the Olympics, and we've made jokes about this pretty much since the beginning of the show, there is a lot of concern about men who run sports and women's reproductive potential. And why is that constantly the reason that women get barred, that men want to stop women from participating, and other women want to stop women from participating in sports, the idea that your floating uterus will end up out of your body. Okay. There's two answers to that. First of all, in recent times, the United States has a brilliant Nordic ski jumper named Carla Keck. And when she was first trying to get into Nordic ski jumping into the early nineties, and actually as a child, late eighties, But when she was trying to get into Nordic ski jumping, she wasn't allowed and the sport wasn't allowed in the IOC because it was a feared that when she landed on the snow that her uterus would just 
fall out of her body because of the impact. And this has been throughout time. And the truth of it is, is it's just a convenience. Number one, it lends to everything I just said about how little men understand about the female body, that they could throughout time into the 1990s, be worried that her uterus could drop just only proves once again, that we have never fully cared about or given much thought to the health and welfare of the female. And so this is, we've just always just abused her and then used her physical being as a convenient to our political point. In the late 1800s, when women wanted to take to the bicycle, there was so much outrage to her getting on the bicycle and they would warn that the vibrations of her bicycle seat would cause her to become loose and immoral, or it could even drive her insane because she could have orgasms while she's pedaling. And then on top of that, doctors were taking to local newspapers and writing articles warning that she could get bicycle face. By sheer pedaling, she would grimace and she would have this bicycle face. And it really wasn't about her having a contorted face or her uterus. It, it was about her having freedom. That's what it was about. And for Carla Keck, it wasn't about it falling out when she landed. It was about her playing with the boys. That's what it was about. And so going back even before that, the idea was to tight lace, you know, the corsets, you know, to tight lace a woman to make her figure as hourglass as possible. And that was for the male gaze. It's always been about disfiguring and dishonoring and discrediting the female for the male gaze or just to be a prop for from Spartan times to now. That's what it's always been. So, you know, when they would talk about when Sigmund Freud would talk about women passed out, it's like, yeah, she's passing out because she's got a waist four inches wide that she can't breathe. That's why she's passing out. And then into the 1800s when women were drowning all the time, it was because, yeah, they're drowning because when their bathing suit is wet, it weighs 30 pounds. That's why they're drowning. And oh, by the way, you never taught her to swim. <laughs> really, it's funny, but it's just absurd. And so that even into today, we are always talking about protecting the female form. And yet by the 1990s, France had allowed breast implants to be put into women and they knew that the implants were made from substances that came from mattresses. And then women started getting really sick and dying. And so we really don't worry that much about women until we can use it as a platform of some kind. And then it becomes a discussion. I don't know about you two, but my uterus has never wandered. I know where it is. <laughs> well, could it also be that men see their reproductive organs? So they're like, well, I see it. I know what happens. And well, oh my gosh. it's just kind of hidden away. It's a mystery, mystery up in there. We don't know. <laughs> you know what? It's so funny and so obvious. I'm sad that I never thought of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speaking of reproduction, you have a lot of stories of pregnant athletes and competing while pregnant in the book. I do. So I gave you a little preview of how insane the segue into bobsledding was. And so I realized I am pregnant. And the first thing I did is I went to my teammates and I said, I can't quit because if I were to quit because I was pregnant, all the good old boys would say, yep, see, there you go. Women just get pregnant. And that's why you can't hire them for jobs. That's why you can't pay them the same. That's why you can't get them into sports. And so 
word quickly got around that there was this pregnant bobsledder. And I got a call from Case Western University and this renowned program for researching, and they wanted me in because at that point in 1994, really the only studies on elite female athletes who were pregnant were biathletes and long distance runners. And at that time I was clocked at running about 20 miles an hour. I was squatting 375 and doing really intense plyometrics. And they said, we'd love to have you. And so I said, yeah, because it was a way for me to know that my baby-to-be was going to be safe. And so I was literally hooked up to everything when I was doing plyometrics and doing all kinds of intense training. And a few times then they would kind of raise a hand and say, okay, dial it back. You got to, Because my heart rate, as my heart rate would go up a few times, Katie, my daughter, her heart rate would drop. And so I had the benefit of going full on like so many women have never been able to do because I had EKG leads, I had a heart monitor, a fetal monitor, I had an oxygen mask. And even though this makes everybody wildly uncomfortable, I also had a rectal thermometer in while I was training. Yeah. And a funny story about that too is it's funny you know, and now I'm very just matter of fact about it because it's important. It's important to know that my inner core temperature is more important for my baby in utero than my heart rate. As an elite athlete, me getting up to 170, 180 beats per minute is nothing. But even today, OBGYNs will tell their athletes, don't let your heart rate get over 140. And so most athlete, elite athletes get so discouraged with that information, they just quit. 140, that's nothing. And then you feel like, well, what's the point of what I'm doing? So while my heart rate could go up, as but we what we watched was my inner core temperature and then Katie's heart rate. But a funny story about that is when the internet finally kind of opened up and it became huge as it is, it was in the early 2000s and I would have people walk up to me and say, oh, I read about you and thank you so much. Your research really helped my training for whatever sport. And I'd say, oh, that's so cool. What, what were you reading? And they'd say, the urethral thermometer. And I'd think, really? For everything I've done, this is my big contribution. <laughs> this is my contribution in women's history. She wore the rectal thermometer. So, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I'm working really hard. That's, this is why I write books is I'm trying to make people forget about the whole rectal thermometer thing. What I thought was so interesting in the book is we are of an age. And when I was pregnant, it was self-limiting. If you feel good enough, go do it. And when I was a kid, it was women can do anything that boys can do. And yet that message doesn't seem to be absorbed in society. Like they say this to us and they said this to us as children yeah. and they said this to us as pregnant women. And yet all these years later, my daughter is 20. And yet we're still having this discussion about, is it safe for pregnant women to compete at the Olympics? Yeah. I mean, that goes back to what I was saying earlier is that how is it that it's 2023 and I still get emails from people who say, I'm pregnant. Can I do fill in the blank? And so that just lends to what I was saying, which is how is it 2023 and we only do 6% of exercise science on females and we still use a 154 pound male model. And so we really have to fix that problem, but it's not just medicine. It's not just medical. So for example, at the end of every semester, 
And I talk a lot about Title IX and the history and how it came about and why it's so important and, and it's relevant every year on campus. And at the end, I let my students free flow. I let them tell me what they think. And I ask, so after everything that we've gone over with Title IX and everything else, how can we combat the violence against girls and women? How can we do that? And I I always have to sort of brace myself because the answers are so honest, but my male and my female students will say something along these lines of, yes, it's really terrible. I don't see change because this is just the way it's always been. And I just, I just think I've given you the tools. I've told you if we follow the guidelines of the NCAA, we do reporting, we check on our coaches and we change how we talk about females versus males in sports and everything else. We could make a change, but in the end of the whole class, their takeaway is, yeah, there's, we're always going to have violence against women. It's sad, but that's just the way it is. You know? And I just think, so what do we do about that? What do we do? Well, I have some rather simplistic answers, but they're not. If long-term, you know, you all remember when the Norwegian volleyball women's team decided that they were not going to wear bikinis anymore, the sands, people don't realize that the sands can get hotter than over a hundred degrees. And yet the men wear shorts just all the way down to their knees and they wear tank tops and the women are supposed to wear bikinis. Why? And you're going to tell me that you're protecting women, but you want, you don't care if she gets burned up on the sand because it's always about the image because the IOC understands that women's beach volleyball is far, far more viewed than men's beach volleyball. And why is that? We like the, it's the gaze. We like to look at her body. And so that would have hurt the IOC financially if we allow the women to dress like the men. So we can't have that. The women's ice skating in the Winter Olympics is the most popular, most viewed sport, followed by bobsled. And the only reason bobsled is, is because everybody wants to see a crash, right? And so there's reasons behind the, what is the most viewed, but the most viewed women's gymnastics, women's beach volleyball, women's ice skating, because we like to look at that feminine form that we like. One of the least viewed, the WNBA struggles because we don't like to see tall, large, aggressive, angular women. I do. You guys probably do, but that's not what's viewed. And so it always comes down to politics and money. What is the feminine ideal? And they aren't it, but the women in, women in bikinis getting burned up on 102 degree sand. We like that. So let's just keep them in those bikinis. So I do think that when we stop really pushing that look of her being in the bikini, it's easier. That's why I said it's so simplistic, but it's not because, but if we could stop that whole feminine or the, what is that ideal? I think we could really even the odds. I did have a student say to me once, cause I said, most people don't realize the Latina female athlete really didn't come onto the scene until the 1990s. And I, you know, I look around my class and one day I said to my class, I go, why is that? That just seems like it was yesterday. How could that be? And a Hispanic male student said, oh, I can answer this. This is my culture. And he said, because you can't really take a hyper-sexualized person seriously. 
And I just thought, well, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. There's your answer. Along the basketball lines, and I realize that this strays from Olympics and stuff, but the women's NCAA tournament, basketball tournament this year, got great ratings. Yeah. And do you see this as kind of a turning point where will we start seeing more of this style of body, this style of aggression at play and being okay with it? So yay, good question. And when I actually did talk about female basketball players, in terms of the Olympics, no one really watches the women's basketball in the Olympics, but they do pay attention to the men's basketball team. So there's definitely disparity there, just as there is the NBA and the WNBA. But to this, yeah, how many people watched the LSU-Iowa women's basketball game? It broke records. I mean, it was phenomenal. I mean, it was an amazing game, and I absolutely loved it. And so I welcome that level of competitiveness because it gets people talking. And I've had my own college students tell me that they don't watch women's sports because they don't think female athletes are exciting, to which I, in front of the whole class, I'll go, I don't know what you're looking at, but they're extremely exciting to watch. And there's been so many controversies. One of my favorite stories that I uncovered when I was doing research was Elizabeth Wilkinson in the beginning of the 1700s. And her husband was not a nice guy and he was a notorious thief and robber and he was eventually hung. And one of the women that testified against him in court, Elizabeth, went after that woman and she took out an ad in the paper and she totally trash talked her. And she said, I want to meet you in the back alley at high noon. Anything goes, I'm a whoopier, you know what? And so this woman showed and they had a throwdown. And after that, Elizabeth Wilkinson launched her, what we would call today her MMA career. And she fought men. She fought women. She used weapons. It was anything goes. But the thing that stunned the world was that she didn't just do the fight. She would take out an ad in the newspaper and call somebody out and trash talk them so much that royals and nobility would show up to her matches because they were delighted by this woman. She broke every feminine norm there was, but they loved her. Flash forward to Ronda Rousey, who had tattoos and she trash talked and she, in an interview, she talked openly about having a pretty good sexual appetite and she drank and she did all these things. And so there was a whole score of people who, that's so inappropriate and they didn't like her, but so many, many more loved her because she was just like in your face. And so I do think that we're going to see more and more athletes just laying it out there and just being who they are, which is they're highly competitive and they're going to trash talk and they're going to do what they're going to do. And I love it. I love it. I'm glad you brought up the boxing because that's one of the things that I noted while I was reading was how long ago women were fighting and yet women's fighting sports in the Olympics took a long time to get in, especially with boxing, didn't get in until 2012. Talk to us a little bit more about women fighting and then that eventually getting accepted as a sport. So first of all, I would say women have been fighting for thousands of years. 
We just don't get to write about it because it was literally written out of history. We have glimpses of the Amazons and the Odyssey and a few things. And then there's just radio silence because then when, as soon as they started writing more and and record keeping, that kind of behavior was just eradicated from history. And so we like to think that Elizabeth Wilkinson was an oddity. I mean, she was, but she was the first and only for another several hundred years, right? In fact, women have always been fighters. One of my favorite parts of my research was when I came upon, when archaeologists actually finally realized, wait, these graves that we're digging up and these bodies that we're finding these are Amazons. And they began, they did DNA testing and they realized that there are women who were buried with their weapons that have always been labeled and tagged as males by virtue of seeing weapons. And it never occurred to anybody that these are women. And that's when we started to learn so much more about the Amazons and how long they've been around. And so women have always been fighting throughout time and they've always been soldiers and they've always been competitive. We just never really heard about it. And then, of course, I shared Elizabeth Wilkinson. But yeah, into the 1990s, we have a British fighter named Jane Couch to thank because in England, women were not allowed to box based on her menstrual cycle because we all know that women are unstable during their menstrual cycle. And so she was... this went before a court that they decided that well, a female boxer and a menstrual cycle, are you kidding me? And so, and again, I can't say enough times. That's why I'm saying we need so much more research because that held in the 1990s. And so then it took that many more years and Jane Couch fought and fought and fought for the right for women to fight. And so the fact that it took so long for women to be allowed to be competitive fighters when she's always been a fighter is just, it just lends to how slowly we move when it comes to women and her rights. Excellent. Alex, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about our book. We really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Thank you. And I loved your questions. Those were fantastic. Those were hard hitting, but fantastic questions. (laughs) Thank you so much, Alex. Learn more about Alex at alexandraallred.com and follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. We will have links to all of those in the show notes. We'll also have a link to Alex's book. You can get a copy through our bookshop.org affiliate store, which is bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod. We earn a commission on all purchases made through our store link, whether or not they're books on our list. So if you're buying some books for summer reading, please use our link because money we earn from that goes to cover operating costs and to fund our in-person coverage of Paris 2024. That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at Seoul 1988 as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. It is my turn for a story. So since we were talking about women making history, I wanted to talk about the first time that women got their own event in sailing again i think this is either the fourth (laughs) or the fifth story where women got their own event in this this was a big olympics for equality i'm a little flabbergasted when we say equality because it, it still has taken a long time to get to actual equality but you're right this was a big step forward in 
in that movement. So this is the first time that women had their own event in sailing with the 470 craft. The 470 had been a mixed event since 1976, but this was the first time it was separated into a men's event and a women's event. Back in 1988, they called it yachting. It wasn't sailing. (laughs) The 470 is a two-person dinghy that has spinnaker sails. So spinnakers are those big billowy sails that they use for sailing with the direction of the wind, just to give you an idea of what this boat is like. And in this race, we had 21 nations competing with the dominant team being Sweden's Merit Soderstrom and Birgitta Bengston. And 470.org wrote, quote, no one expected much of a competition But then no one had experienced women's sailings at the games before. End quote. I'm just going to roll my eyes verbally. Now, weather was a huge factor throughout the entire yachting competition. The event was held in Busan on the southeast coast of South Korea. And that was the country's major port. But it wasn't a sailing hub because there wasn't really much recreational sailing going on in South Korea, of course, until they got the game. So they had to build that up. There was a Korea Yachting Association, basically existed in name only. This is kind of important because there was little data about the tides in the area and teams hadn't started really digging into meteorological programs that competitors use today. So they did have many test events here because of Korea's lack of experience in this event and they wanted to make sure everything was going well. The year before at the test event, the winds had been very light. So that's what competitors compared, what they prepared for. However, this turned out to be one of the windiest competitions ever in Olympic sailing history. And this will become a factor in many events, as we shall find out, because I've got more than one story in the yachting sailing genre for you. So we've got our favorites from Sweden, but seemingly out of nowhere comes Americans Alice and Jolly and Lynn Jewell. Blown in by the winds. Right? Jolly was the skipper. Jewell was the crew. These two were an odd couple, like you wouldn't believe. Jolly was small. Jewel was tall. Jolly was a pessimist. Lynn was an optimist. Jolly was a better tactician. Jewel was a great boat handler. So together, they were very complimentary. And they, where they did match was their drive to win. So that's what made them a really good team. In the months leading up to the U.S. trials, they decided to stay home to train and work on fundamentals instead of going to Europe to sail in competitions. So nobody really knew what they were doing and they just kind of became an afterthought in terms of competitions. It was also cheaper to stay home, particularly because they needed a new boat. In February, before the trials, their boat's spine broke when they got lost at sea. New boat, not ready until two days before the trials. Okay, that's cutting it very close. Right. And they ended up winning. You know, you have a brand new boat to get used to and they won. So they got the right to go to Seoul and compete at the Olympics. At Seoul, their boat went through measurements and failed a balance test because it was too balanced and didn't look like the other 470 boats. And in order to race, they had to add a half a pound onto the transom. And to put that in perspective, they said that half an ounce is a big deal. So they loaded a half a pound onto this boat. I don't think anybody has ever said to me that I am too balanced. (laughs) So this is really a foreign concept. (laughs) 
They also had to change the jib leads, take out all the hardware, and go with a totally new string system. So needless to say, their mental game is all messed up. That all toyed with their mental game. But you couldn't tell because they started their regatta with a bang. In the first four races, they had two wins, one second place, one third place. In the fifth race, they got disqualified for an incident with the French because Jolly had made a quick tack to stay clear and capsized in the process. The French protested. The international jury ruled in their favor. So the disqualification put Jolly and Jewel into second place overall. In the sixth race, they got second place to put them back on top. And then in the seventh and final race, they needed to finish just 14th or higher to win the gold. You would think that would not be too difficult in a 21-boat race. But the wins. There you go. Before the start of the race, there was light air. And Jolly and Jewel were in third, going through the first triangle of the course, and then disaster struck. The wind, current, and waves all picked up. Wind got up to 35 knots, which is 40 miles an hour. Waves are getting to be 9 to 10 feet tall, about 3 meters. Boats all around them starting to capsize. Jewel's calling out the wave types so that Jolly can navigate them as carefully as possible. So she'll yell, steep wave with a flat back! Round wave with a round back. Big wave. And then as they launch through that, Jewel goes, no back. And they, because there's nothing on the back of this wave, and they just slam down. And their jib breaks. So they slow down, and they debate what to do. Jolly suggests capsizing the boat to be able to work on a fix. But then Jewel says that's going to be too dangerous with all the wind and the wave and the current. They finally decide to loosen the rig tension enough to allow the upper part of the mast to tilt down until they could reach it. And so Jolly's bracing it with her feet and Jewel makes the fix with, I saw several different types of objects she used to fix this. It could have been rope. It could have been string. It could have been a shoelace. And this took them about five minutes to do. So when they're done, they're in last place. But there are still two legs of the course to sail. So Jolly decides to make a big move. At the windward mark in 35 knot winds, Jolly calls to hoist the spinnaker. What? They are the only boat on the course to risk this move. And they start flying. Yes. (laughs) But that's when... You're going to lose control because it's going so fast. Yes. And you're catching so much wind. Yes. But they had done a lot of heavy wind training. And even though while they're flying, the boat goes, starts nosediving over the waves so much so that they had to sit on the stern, both of them, to keep it from going under. They managed to finish the race, navigate the course. They're completely spent when they're done. They have no idea how they did. They're staggering up the deck and they find out they got ninth. And won the gold medal. Swedish favorites won silver. Allison Jolly and Lynn Jewell remain the only American women to win gold in the 470 class. And this marked the beginning of the Federation's determination to reach the IOC guidelines, requiring a greater proportion of women's participation in the Games. And they will have full gender equity for the first time at Paris 2024. Hopefully they'll have better wins. Welcome to Shukflistan. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team Keep the Flame Alive. These are past 
guests and fans of the show who make up our citizenship of Ashukflastan. First up, para-archer Matt Stutzman has qualified for the para-archery world champs and he'll be representing Team USA while defending his world title this year. Laura Webster and the Team USA sitting volleyball team have qualified for the Paris Paralympics. And Paul Valter, Katie Moon, Hammer Thrower, Deanna Price, and Shuklastani by proxy. Can we say that, Jake Whiteman? Absolutely. Yes, son of Jeff Whiteman. They will all be competing at the Los Angeles Grand Prix on May 26th through 27th. You can find out more information at lagrandprix.org. That looks like an amazing event. I was reading about it. And it's the shot put competition, of course, is the biggies. Ryan Krauser, Joe Kovacs. And the stadium was built in like the 80s, and they don't know if the shot put court field will hold their throws. Because nobody can control Ryan Krauser. <laughs> I mean, he's come close to throwing it out of the field at World Championships, which yes. was a field designed to handle him. So this ought to be good. <laughs> so we were talking in our Patreon show about Brazilian volleyball players ending up in your lap. That's a good reason to become a patron. But now you're going to end up, someone's going to have to catch Ryan Crozer's <laughs> shot put. And that you get out of the way because those things are heavy, man. And can you imagine the velocity that would have? Oh. And he would feel so bad about it. We've seen many interviews with him. And he's a great, great guy. And God, he would really not want to take somebody out. <laughs> but yeah, check that out. LAGrandPrix.org. We would like to take a moment to thank our patrons who keep our flame alive. Speaking of the Patreon episode that you so lovely, so nicely teased, if you'd like to become a patron at the silver medal level, you get access immediately to all of our bonus episodes with rule changes for Paris 2024. And wouldn't you know, like to know how Brazilian volleyball players might end up in your lap? So becoming a patron is really your way of supporting everything we do and enabling it to happen. There are many other benefits, all starting at $2 a month. See flamealivepod.com slash support and look for the Patreon link or just check the show notes. I did get an email in my regular inbox this time that said my time was coming, but of course we've gotten our press credentials, so I don't need it. And it's a good thing because it didn't seem like people really got what they wanted in this ticket round. I, I also got an email and I checked it out. Contributor Ben, he got an email and opted not to buy anything because there was nothing he wanted left. I think there were a lot of people who got a lot of tickets that they wanted and then a lot of people who thought everything was going to cost 24 euros and was, were upset. So yeah, phase two is ongoing for ticket sales. Might be over by the time you read this because organizers were releasing 1.5 million tickets for this phase. But according to Franck Zhu.com, they sold 1 million tickets in the first 48 hours, which I think is unbelievable. 20 sports are sold out. There's a lot of football left. And baseball stuff with big tournaments is left. But if you want to see breaking, forget it. Fencing, no. Modern pentathlon, no. And, you, you know, modern pentathlon, not the most popular of sports. But even it is sold out, too. Our friend Rich Perlman over at the Sports Examiner noted that organizers could go back to the sites and see if there are ways they could add more seats to sell more tickets. 
They could also ask for tickets back from the federations and the NOCs and sponsors and others if they're not going to be used. So will they do this? Don't know. But it's an idea. It really is. I mean, they want to sell as many tickets as they can because this is cash in their pocket. They don't share ticket sales with anybody. Right. And it's much needed revenue with the way inflation has kind of really hurt their budget. They could really use that boost. Our friend Ken Hanscom also noted that some of the tickets could still be available as part of hospitality packages from on location. We'll put a link to those in the show notes. Now, those might be expensive, but if this is an event you really want to do or really want to see, that might be the way to do it. It'll be interesting to see as press because we didn't have this issue in Beijing with having to get ticketed as press for certain high demand events. And this clearly we're going to have to be ticketed for certain events and what we can and cannot get into as press. We were very free in Beijing to just roam around, go in and out of for all our lack of freedom. We certainly never had, even for the opening ceremonies, we had a ticket, but everyone who asked for one got one. That will not be the case in Paris. We're going to have to be much more diligent and precise in where we want to go, when, and to see which events. It's going to be a challenge, not just for fans, but for press as well, to see things. Yes. And one other factor in that is transportation. How long will it take to get around? I don't know if you noticed this, but somewhere on the Paris 2024 ticketing website, and I will look for a link for this for the show notes, they did have a plan your travel. And they said, don't look at other apps because they're not factoring in the crowds that you're going to have to deal with. Someone posted in Ken Hanscom's Facebook group that two venues that were in central Paris, they were recommending four hours transfer between them. And it's about a 15 minute walk. And I think they were recommending the four hours because of getting out of the venue and through the out security, walking in this enormous crowd and then getting into the next venue through security. So even when you can, it's going to be like the buses in Beijing. We can see the venue. We just can't get to the venue, (laughs) but in a very different way. So this ought to be interesting to do not go to Paris if you're claustrophobic, clearly, because they are expecting wall-to-wall people. Which I think to bring back that Olympic excitement will be fun. Good news for those of you in the U.S. who are looking at NBC coverage. Peacock will stream all events live, plus have full event replays, clips, and exclusive programming. This should be free, except for men's basketball, which I guess they're putting on the $4.99 premium tier, according to Front Office Sports. NBC networks are also going to have a lot of live coverage during the day. Plus, they'll have primetime programming across a number of its networks. They've said it's going to be unprecedented how much coverage they have. They say that every time. Well, that's true. My Uh, people! (laughs) There will be a Casa Italia hospitality house. This will be located at Pre-Catalan. Buongiorno! Can we get you out of there? The house will also have a look at Milan Cortina 2026. I mentioned they will have a fair amount of displays about the games since they are next up for hosting. There's not much other details about how much, if it's free to get in, if public are welcome, but we know it's going to exist. 
Speaking of Italia, it's 1,000 days to go till 2026. This got me so excited. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. So when this popped up on my Instagram, people started the Italian organizing committee and, and the different Italian teams. I happened to be on the phone with my mother and I said, oh, it's a thousand days until Milan Cortina. And she said, wait, what do you mean? She didn't realize that the next one was in Italy. And all of a sudden she got so excited for me. <laughs> and she, she said, wait, you're going to get to go to Italy. I said, don't get too excited. We haven't gotten press credentials for that yet, but I got very excited again. <laughs> Good. It will be exciting once it goes. And I mean, the mountains there are so beautiful. Work is beginning on the long track speed skating rink this summer. This will be at Fiera Milano Exhibition Center in Milan. They'll be combining two existing halls to make one rink. We talked about that because there was a little conundrum over can we have an outdoor venue that has a, a cover over it or not? And they've gone with the please use an indoor venue tactic. This is pretty cool. The organizing committee also plans to make Verona Arena fully accessible. This is the venue where the Olympics closing ceremonies and the Paralympics opening ceremonies will be held. And it's a big deal because the arena is 2000 years old. So obviously not really accessible, but organizers hope that this will be one of the big legacies of these games. Do you know what that means? Hmm. Will be two gentlewomen of Verona. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's going to be what our oh, Milan no. Paralympic coverage will be called. <laughs> oh, get ready for that. That's going to be a good one. <laughs> I don't even know the plot of that play. It doesn't matter. It's right. a Shakespeare comedy. Somebody was dressed in drag. Somebody was confused about who they were. Everybody ends up happy in the end. And that will be us at the Paralympics. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Let us know some of your favorite moments in women's Olympic and Paralympic history. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at FlameAlivePod. Email us at FlameAlivePod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. Next week coming up is Memorial Day weekend here in the United States. So we will be doing a shorter show, but we will be uh, ushering in the summer movie season with our movie club selection, Zero to Hero. We had a great conversation with film buff Fran about that. So tune in and... uh, see if you want to watch it for yourself. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.